All right. For those of you that may or may not have remembered who I am or um, uh, have, are here for the first time, possibly, my name is Steve Pink. I'm the communications director here at Pathway, and I have the pleasure of being with you here in this class as we work through the second part of the book of Exodus. Uh, and uh, Israel, like just as a recap where we're at, Israel has been miraculously and dramatically freed from Egypt. We're now at the foot of Mount Sinai. Moses has been going up to meet God on the mountaintop, and God has officially created the new nation of Israel. And it begins here with his introduction of the covenant. And the covenant begins with the Ten Commandments, of course, or as we've been referring to them, the Ten Words. And as I, and as I shared a couple weeks ago, this covenant is, is essentially Israel's constitution. It's the official legal document, here written stone, that defines who they will be as a nation. It defines what will be distinctive about them, similar to our Constitution for America. And God intends for the people of Israel to be very, very distinctive, incredibly unique among the nations. Exodus 19, 5 through 6, kind of captures this idea. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be measured, you will be treasured, my, excuse me, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's very unique, very distinctive. And so now today we're going to take a look at what's called the Book of the Covenant. The Book of the Covenant. And we're going to be looking at a fairly large swath of Scripture here today. We're going to be taking a high altitude, quick trip through this portion before you have time to go and unpack it in more detail in your groups. <laughs> this spans Exodus chapter 20, verse 22, through chapter 24, verse 18. And this is essentially God unpacking and applying the core Ten Commandments to more specific aspects of their lives as a new nation. We're getting a little bit more granular. We're getting a little bit more specific about how we should take these Ten Commandments and live them, live them out. All right, in more specific contexts, more specific situations. As we all know, our lives are complex. Our lives are complicated. Different people, different personalities, different families, different circumstances, different jobs, different responsibilities. And like if I said, here's one rule, apply this to yourself and to your family, you would all kind of do it a little bit differently. Right? You didn't interpret a little bit differently. Some of you would interpret it a little more progressively. Some of you a little bit more conservatively. Uh, some of you a little bit more uh, uh, very like detailed, like some of you that are really kind of type A personalities, like how can I get very specific and map this out in my family? Others of you might be more organic about it and artistic about it and free-spirited about it. I don't know, but it's going to be applied a variety of different ways. And so when you're looking at these Ten Commandments, how do each of the different tribes of Israel with each of the different unique personalities and family types, how do they apply that to their family? And this is kind of what God's beginning to address here in the Book of the Covenant. In these expanded stipulations of the Covenant, in chapters 20 through uh, 23, the Israelites were given concrete examples of how the very terse, terse being very short, crisp, and abrupt, like these very specific Ten Commandments, the terse and absolute principles of the Ten Commandments were to function in their everyday lives. And as we'll see in each of the legal categories we're about to look at, these examples are stated in the if-then form common to ancient legal codes. If this thing happens, 
then that is what the consequences should be. This and that. It's a very basic form of legal code. It's what all of modern law is essentially predicated upon. It's pretty sophisticated, pretty advanced, uh, for its, certainly for its day and age, and it's a beautiful system. And so let's take a look at these various categories of covenant law. And before we get started, a quick caveat. I kind of already referenced this. I'm certainly not going to attempt to go through this section verse by verse, law by law. Uh, this is a sizable portion of Scripture with 123 verses and many laws. So we'll be looking at the main categories for the most part and some, some of the big ideas that are represented here. <laughs> and I'll be highlighting a few of the more intriguing verses or complicated verses or interesting verses and contact, uh, concepts as we're going through. But we won't reference it all, though you're certainly free to do so in your small group if you have the time and the inclination to do so. So, ready? Let's get at it. The categories of covenant law presented in this section have been divided a couple different ways. And you'll see these divisions represented by the section headings in your Bibles. And as is typical, these headings can vary a little bit in style and in location based on the translation version that you're using. They can vary a little bit. But essentially, for our extents and purposes, there are six categories of law in the Book of the Covenant. And these relate to laws about altars, God's concern for the helpless, and we'll be going through all of these, so if you don't catch them all now, you can catch them as we go. Laws about altars, God's concern for the helpless, personal injury, property loss, social justice, and religious observation, or excuse me, religious observances. I guess the same thing. So the first category of laws in this section relates to altars, which is a pretty big deal back then in terms of their, their relationship with God, their covenant relationship with God, the fact that he's describing this to them and saying, you need these and this is how we're going to relate to one another, this sinful fallen group of people, how you can actually approach me and interact with me and find forgiveness for your sinfulness so that a holy God can interact with you in this particular way. You need these altars. It's the center of your worship in this context. Frankly, and we'll talk about this in a second, it's the center of all ancient worship. And some churches still have altars today. <laughs> this one doesn't. A lot of churches don't anymore, but some churches still do have altars. You'll know. Certainly the Catholic Church has altars, and some of the other high church denominations retain their altars. Um, but... It's obviously been significant to the worship of God and the interaction with God for all of history, for most people that are uh, seeking God. And one interesting directive presented here is that the Israelites' altars are to be built with undressed stones. Undressed stones. As they would defile it, they would defile it if they used any tools on them. So the idea is that they had to build their altars out of undressed stones with no tools Okay, which presents some interesting challenges. And this is very unlike the intricate, often beautiful and exotic altars of other ancient cultures, right? On the left, you can see some stuff from Egypt. On the right, you can see some of the Aztec stuff that we know of from South America. It's eerily similar in many respects. Um, I saw temples similar to this in Cambodia. Um, you would see a lot of stuff like this in all of the ancient world. 
uh, in terms of their holy uh, temples and, and altars and things of that nature. These, are, these, are, these specifically are altars. This is kind of what their peers' altars might have looked like. Clearly, these are dressed stones. Clearly, they're using tools, sophisticated tools. And, and these altars that are being described are similar only, perhaps, to the crudest and most primitive altars of very ancient people groups, like the Celtic people, which they started to get pretty ornamental it, it, over time. But like the ancient altars in like northern Europe and so on were pretty primitive. It's a couple stones with a slab on top, right? That's how they did their thing. So very basic. But even more basic than that, here's what the Israelites' altars would have looked like early on. These are what early Israeli altars looked like in this context. Um, and these were essentially made from clay and piled up stones. And considering that the tribes of Israel were completely nomadic at this point, this makes a lot of practical sense. These altars would be constructed while on the move, and they were predominantly temporary in nature. But clearly, there was an important symbolic and spiritual dimension to this prohibition as well. And the consensus here is that dress stones were prohibited as another way of distinguishing Hebrew worship from that of their idolatrous neighbors. It distinguished them. Now, granted, the other cultures would have looked down on them because these are just recently freed slaves. So they would look down on them as pe basic people, backwards people. You don't have the skills. You don't have the potential to create an interesting altar. They might have criticized them this way. We find out later on that when they broke into, uh, like the, the, I think it was the Greeks, possibly the Romans, but I think it was the Greeks broke into a, a Jewish temple. Uh, in the New Testament times, they mocked the Jews for not having an idol of their God represented there. You know, like these are, to them, these were empty temples, and they mocked them. So the other cultures would have obviously mocked these guys as being a bunch of hillbillies, right? What kind of temple is that, or what kind of altar is that? Look at our, look at our altars. We're obviously artistic and sophisticated. We've got resources. What's that all about? But God wanted to distinguish them. You know, he uses the least, right, the least of these. You know, he uses the weak to humble the proud. We see that again and again and again. And that if they attempted to address these stones or ornament them in any way, that this would soon devolve into one form of idolatry or another. And as we well know from each successive book of the Old Testament, the Israelites certainly were very, very prone to idolatry. I might say all of humans are very, very prone to idolatry. So this pro prohibition makes a lot of good sense, right? So that's all I wanted to say about that section. Now we'll move on to the second category of laws here that relate to God's concern for the helpless. This is Exodus chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. It's that time of year I need a cough drop. All right. So a difficult subject in this section is slavery. Predominantly, this section is mostly talking about slavery which was quite common throughout the ancient world and, frankly, is pretty common still in some parts of our world today, certainly in the third world. It's definitely a similar kind of slavery to this. And it's interesting to note that slavery is not explicitly forbidden here. It's not forbidden. And the reason is, why would our God, the God that we know, not forbid slavery? People have wrestled with this. 
And certainly in our American cultural heritage, people said this is why we can have slaves. Clearly God didn't condemn it, did he? And it's interesting to note that it's not forbidden here. And the reason is that this would leave the destitute, the poor, the impoverished, in that ancient culture with no means of survival. They wouldn't have a means. There were no other social safety nets available for those tragically without money or family. There were no social safety nets. Again, common to third world countries today. Israelites sometimes sold themselves and even family members into such a contractual arrangement in order to survive extreme financial crisis. I witnessed this happen in Cambodia when I was there. Families would sell their daughters or their sons into contractual labor, into slavery, because they couldn't afford to feed them, couldn't afford to give them medical care or even clothe them in some cases, and this was a better alternative for all parties involved, depending on who you sold them to and what they were going to do with them. So in this cultural context, God allowed it. Yet the institution is strictly regulated with clear provisions against the creation of a permanent underclass. This is key. Thus, this legislation intends to prevent exploitation. Servitude for life was possible only through the servant's own choice. Sometimes the servant found a great master, had a great circumstances, enjoyed the place, enjoyed the family. They were being well taken care of and well respected in that context, and they wanted to remain there. And they were allowed to if they chose to do that. And that's where the whole all through the ear thing comes, you'll see as you're reading through there. They can commit themselves to that family as a permanent indentured servant. <clears throat> and a definite subset of slavery in that culture referenced here in this passage is the buying and selling of women, predominantly as concubines. And concubines were essentially glorified female slaves serving in various ways around the house. This is probably an inappropriate joke, but we could probably use some extra help around my house. I don't know. It's, like, it's inappropriate. I think my, my wife would agree, somebody to help with the cleaning. If that, were, if that were all this was about, but of course, it was never all that it was about back then. They were especially used as an additional sexual partner for the male head of the household. That's typically what a concubine's responsibility was. A woman born into poverty in that day and age had almost no chance of a normal marriage. And as unideal as concubinage was, it was preferable to the alternative, which was prostitution. Right? So this was a preferable alternative, and God acknowledged that in this situation. Given these realities, this law sought to ensure that the concubine would be treated as a person of worth, not as an expendable sexual partner. So in concluding this section, it's important to note that there were no parallels to these laws in any other Near Eastern legal collections. Their laws always deferred to the rights of the masters over any concern for the slaves. Always deferred to the rights of the masters. But by God's covenant mandate, these impoverished slaves were to be treated as human beings rather than mere personal property. The Bible makes it incredibly clear elsewhere and as a whole that slavery is an ungodly abomination. The Bible is clear about this. And here, so very early on in his revelation to his people, 
God is already making it clear that his heart is always for the least, the last, and the lost. God's heart is always for the least, the last, and the lost. Psalm 82, 3 through 4. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. This is God's heart. And it should be ours as well. Amen? Consider what efforts you are making, you are making, or might make, to rescue the weak and the needy. Are you, do you have a heart for the weak and the needy? Are you doing anything to reach out to them? Because that's God's heart, and it should be your heart as well. And as we are to grow even more into the likeness of Christ, into the image of Christ, as we've discussed, we are to love as he loves. And God has persistently demonstrated a love for the weak and the needy. And so must we as well. Next section, personal injury lawyers. This is the part where the guy has like an ad on the billboard or the back of like some park bench somewhere. We'll get money for you. Old Testament style. Personal injury law. It's like those calls you get. Were you here at this particular, did you work in this area at this particular time? And do you have these symptoms? Blah, 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 blah. Call this number. All right, that's this section. Actually, this chapter 21, verses 12 to 32. The basic principles here are equality and responsibility. Okay, you can write that down if you want. But that's the basic principles that are being celebrated here. And these are important, equality and responsibility. If a person injured another, whether intentionally or as a result of a failure to take reasonable precautions that person would experience the same results or their equivalent. Exodus 21, 23 through 25. Famous verse. Life for a life, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, hand for a hand, foot for a foot, burn for a burn, wound for a wound, bruise for a bruise. Equivalency. And while this can be considered a rather brutal and barbaric standard from our modern perspective... And Jesus does challenge this as he challenges all of us to transcend this even in his day 2,000 some years ago. Matthew 5, 38 through 42. You have heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, Go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. So Jesus himself is upping this, this uh, personal injury law standard in a dramatic way. Wish we had time to unpack that, but we're not going to go there today. In Israel's ancient Iron Age context... This was an incredibly advanced and egalitarian policy. This was incredibly advanced for that time. So just as Jesus took them even like 2,000 years into the future, and in fact his version transcends even anything we can accomplish in our own strength today, even in our sophisticated legal systems, Jesus has taken it to the ultimate level. This, even as brutish and barbaric as it can seem to us, like, I injured that guy's arm, now i got to have my arm injured. I had it, there was an accident and your foot got chopped off, now i got to get my foot chopped off. 
or some kind of equivalency. That's pretty rough. But at that time, this was incredibly advanced. And while uh, usually the punishment for most infractions in that day and age was incredibly severe, especially across class lines. And as we'll discuss in a moment in the next section, even minor infractions could result in death. Even minor infractions. And the principle here is of moral equivalency. Moral equivalence. Fair treatment for both parties, for both the plaintiff and the defendant. And this law ensured that no consequences exceeded the original offense. Moving along. Property loss. Property loss. And the primary form that's addressed here is theft. And there's a couple unique distinctives here that I'd like to call to our attention. In almost every other ancient culture, thievery was punishable by death. You steal something significant, you're dead. They even did this in the Wild West. You stole somebody's horse, guess what? You're going to be strung up from that tree outside of town. You stole a horse, you're going to die. All right? This was similar in this context. <laughs> um, here in this section, multiple restitution is the key. Multiple restitution. This is exemplified in chapter 22, verse 1. Whoever steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it must pay back five head of cattle for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. So there's a punishment dimension to this, obviously. You did something wrong. You committed a crime. You stole something. You stole one ox. You're going to pay back five. And most of them could barely probably afford that and probably ended up in indentured slavery themselves. But... They got what they deserved. But it's, again, it's this equitable, it's, it's equal, it's, 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 it's a healthy, appropriate um, distinctive. Again, unlike all the other competing Near Eastern cultures, God makes it clear that property does not equal life in value. We take this for granted, or we should, but ancient societies certainly did not. And chapter 22, verses 2 through 3, gives some qualifications to this concept. If a householder kills a thief in an act of stealing, he is considered to be justified. But if he kills the thief at a later time, like after sunrise the next day, he is a murderer. All right? Interesting standard. Similar to some of our laws today, killing a thief was justified as self-defense only when the thief was armed and dangerous. In the dark, a homeowner couldn't tell if an intruder was armed or dangerous. In such situations, the homeowner could protect his family and ask questions later. But killing an unarmed thief was inexcusable in daylight, and vengeful pursuit was certainly considered illegal. Okay? So again, very sophisticated standards that God's introducing here that was light years ahead of all similar cultural standards at that time. So in Exodus 22 through 23, this section references laws relating to social justice. And there's a very interesting variety of themes that are addressed here. And it all starts out rather conventionally, if a bit racy, declaring that if someone has premarital sex, they should become married. But then for the next three laws, things get pretty intense. So it starts out with that one. It's interesting the order in this section, by the way. It's like... You're getting, like, whiplash. 
you're kind of going all over the place. Starts out with that one. If you sleep with a virgin, you need to pay your dad the bride price. And if he still doesn't want to give her to you, you still need to pay, her, pay him the bride price. And then it goes into these. Do not allow a sorceress to live. Boom. Anyone who has sexual relations with an animal is to be put to death. <laughs> okay. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord must be destroyed. So, boom, capital punishment for these offenses. And I'm sure we can mostly get the gist of the severity presented here in these. We have bestiality referenced in verse 19, idolatry referenced in 20, and God's already made it clear, do not commit idolatry. I'm pretty serious about this. Sorcery is a little more difficult for us to comprehend today, although when I used to teach college, I had a bunch of Wiccan kids in my classes, like Gothic kids that were into Wicca and Wiccan, which is kind of like the modern form of witchery and witchcraft and worshiping the the forest gods and all this kind of fun stuff. Um, And so there are people still today that want to practice it. I, myself, have been exposed to very clear indications of witchcraft and demonic power. I'm not going to go into that right now, but I've seen and felt the reality of it and the power of it. It's still real, uh, especially in some dark circumstances. But still, for most of us, we're not exposed to it. You know, the only magic that we really deal with is on Netflix. Okay, like some show about magic or whatever. Um, But there is a hard reality to it still today, but especially back then. uh, It was very common. And the concern here was that magic was an attempt to manipulate divine power through rituals. I want to manipulate divine power through rituals apart from a commitment and faith in God. Because if I had faith in God, I certainly wouldn't be doing that. And uh, accordingly, it's treated with similar severity to idolatry referenced in verse 20. So we have these three capital crimes referenced in verses 18 through 20, and then we take a pretty hard turn into a different tone altogether. And this is a tone I much prefer. In verse 22, we have, do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. And this is a theme we'll come to discover that God is very, very passionate about very passionate. James chapter 1, verse 27. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after war- orphans and widows in their distress. It's a big deal. And in verse 21, we have, do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner. This is a little bit dicey considering the things that Americans are struggling with today in our politics, in our government on our national borders, et cetera. Let's try and put that aside and hear God's heart speaking to us here. Do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner. And this, too, is something that God clearly feels very strongly about. This is the only only one of these laws in the covenant that God repeats twice. Here again in chapter 23, verse 9, do not oppress a foreigner. He says it twice. In this section of laws. Pretty big deal. And elsewhere, God doubles down on both of these themes. Zechariah 7.10, do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Deuteronomy 10.18, he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. Do we want that? Do we do that? Do we have that same heart? We must. 
And so we see that orphans, widows, and foreigners are very near to God's heart. And again, as, as we are taking on more and more of the image and character of Christ, we too must grow to have similar love and concern for vulnerable people like these. Amen? Amen. One other verse in this section that needs to be called out is this challenging law referenced here in chapter 22, verse 29. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons shall you give to me. Whoa, what's that? What? What's that all about? Give me your firstborn son. And this was not an uncommon demand or request from other cultures, gods, and religions in that day and age. And when you read that, it's kind of like, wow, this sounds very like the demands of the other brutal gods worshipped in that region. Psalm 106, 37 through 38. The sac- they sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. But of course, this was not what this verse was demanding, of course. There's a definite callback here to God providing a substitutionary sacrifice for Abraham and his son Isaac in Genesis chapter 22. A definite echo here, a definite callback. And of course, this foreshadows... God the Father sacrificing His own Son for our redemption. Amen? But whereas the animals referenced in this section were indeed sacrificed, the Israelites would ceremonially redeem their firstborn sons. They would ceremonially redeem them. Looking back to Exodus chapter 13, which you guys talked about last semester. Consecrate to me every firstborn male. The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether human or animal. And consecrate, defined, means to devote or set apart for, for the service of God. So every firstborn son was supposed, supposed to be consecrated and set apart to the unique and focused and purposeful service of God. And this is what that law is all about. And finally... Our final group of covenant laws has to do with religious observances. With verses 10 through 13 referencing Sabbath laws and 14 through 19 addressing annual religious festivals. And the primary thing I want to emphasize about these is that God once again emphasizes here his concern for the helpless. Here it comes up again. And bear in mind that these are laws. These are laws, covenant laws, the very laws that celebrate who God is and define what will be distinctive about those that will be his chosen people. And here it is, Exodus 23, 10 through 11. For six years you are to sow your fields and harvest the crops. But during the seventh year, let the land lie unplowed and unused. Then the poor among your people may get food from it, and the wild animals may eat what is left. Do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. So again, his concern for the least, the last, and the lost. His concern for the poor in these laws. Exodus 23, 12. Six days do your work, but on the seventh day do not work, so that you're not because you get to rest, although that's part of it, and I talked about that a couple weeks ago. It's a gift from God, the Sabbath day. But here he's emphasizing something else. So that your ox and donkey may rest, and so that the slave born in your household and the foreigner living among you may be refreshed. Again, emphasis on the least, the last, and the lost. This is God's heart revealed. Clearly, care for the least, the last, and the lost is central to what God is all about. 
and it must be central to us as well. And so finally, as the expanded laws of this covenant are concluded, we witness the covenant confirmed. These are the last little portions of Scripture that we're responsible for today. This is the covenant confirmed. And this covenant confirmation has two parts. The first part is all about God confirming His commitment to the covenant. This is Exodus chapter 23, verses 20 through 33. And similar to the if-then form of the laws we just discussed, God indicates here that if the Israelites keep His commandments and live according to His legal system, then He will send an angel before them. And he, There's a lot of fascinating language about this and realities to this that we could unpack. But He's going to send an angel before them, helping them to miraculously move through the lands and conquer any foe they will come against. And this is so fascinating, man. Again, these are this ragtag tribe of recent slaves. And they're going out and wandering amidst these incredibly powerful and sophisticated kingdoms. And God's like, no problemo. I'm going to give you an angel, and he's going to lead you through the land. And anybody that comes against you, you will conquer. And we see when they're keeping the covenant, and they're being obedient to God, that this, in fact, does happen. It blows your mind. But when they don't keep the covenant, and when they become idolatrous and lose focus, then they don't conquer, and sometimes they're conquered. But this is God confirming his commitment to this covenant. If you do these things, then I'm going to miraculously take you where you need to go. And the second part of this covenant confirmation is all about the response of Moses and the people and their commitment to God and his covenant. This is 24 verses 1 through 18. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice. Everything the Lord has said, we will do. And so Moses builds one of these altars we've just described, and they offer sacrifices and burnt offerings to the Lord, and they do some ritual stuff there that I'm not going to get into detail about. We don't have time for that today. But it's kind of like a blood oath. Like a curse will come upon us if we break this. And God actually joins in the blood oath. It's interesting. And so Moses builds this altar and does these sacrifices, and thus the covenant is confirmed, and this concludes our portion of Scripture, the book of the covenant. And so there's one key thought I want to leave with us before we conclude our session today, before you go into your group. Much of the Old Testament includes a lot of themes and events that can seem alien to our modern minds. That's why we're studying it, to understand how it applies to us what it means. This is a very, this is very ancient history. Specifically here in Exodus between circa 1600 and 1400 BC. Like, you know, 3,000 and a half, 4,000 years ago. Ancient history. And it's all set in a uniquely Near Eastern culture. And so a lot of the things God and the Israelites get up to in this narrative can sometimes, from the vantage of our modern sensibilities, seem harsh and even rather barbaric. There's a lot of death and destruction throughout the Old Testament, and there are clearly some severe penalties for any significant infraction against God's covenant law with his people, as we see depicted here in this portion of Exodus. But there's something incredibly profound that most biblical scholars have recognized about God, and he's been revealed as he's been revealed throughout these scriptures. And this is certainly something that any student of scripture 
And any mature born-again believer will at some point grow to realize. And this is that however harsh and even barbaric some of God's interactions with his people can sometimes appear in the Old Testament. And I say that with significant air quotes, appear. God's standards are always way out in front of the contemporaneous cultural setting. They're always way in front of that. Other gods in that time period demanded human sacrifice. Yahweh never does. In fact, going on to give his own son as a sacrifice. Other cultures demand death for thievery and similar infractions. Our God demands fair compensation. (laughs) Other cultures treat slaves and even women in general as property, mere objects or even like cattle to do with and even dispose of as they please. Our God declares that they are to be treated with kindness and dignity. And this is certainly not to say that God's standards change in any way. If I make this argument, people are like, what do you mean? Like God was like this way back then and he's this way now? I'm not saying he's changing. I, the Lord, do not change. Malachi 3.6, Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, unchanging. It's just that our cultural context and, the interpreta- and our interpretations of God and even the means with which God interacts with us changes over time. We find the fullest revelation of who God is and what God's all about as he's revealed in Jesus Christ, correct? John 14, 9, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And we know that this is manifested best in Christ's summary of all the Old Testament laws, which we talked about a couple weeks ago. Matthew chapter 22, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. This, once again, is Jesus summarizing this book of the covenant. This is Jesus summarizing these laws as they were applied to Israel. This is how we are to do it. But please bear in mind, as we're studying through these passages here in Exodus, the sublime beauty of God as it's revealed here, even and perhaps especially in these covenant laws, that our God is always out in front of these cultures leading Israel and humanity ever forward. Scholarship and study always shows this. God is so far in advance of anything else that's going on in that current day, even as you see it in the details that are revealed here in this covenant law. And he's constantly leading humanity to become ever more and more like Christ. That's the ultimate goal. It's happening even there 3,500 years ago. In the details of these laws, he's saying, okay, here's where everybody else is. Come here, treat women this way. Here's where everyone else is. Come here and treat these things this way. I just stepped off camera. Sorry about that, guys. Um, you, get the, you get the picture. All right, so that's the key thought I want to leave with us as we're looking at these commandments, is that woven throughout these very, like, you know, distinctive and sometimes harsh laws is the revelation of God's beautiful and glorious heart of love for his people and his purpose to, for all of us to take on the likeness of Christ. And that's what he was leading Israel to become like, Christ-like, even in that ancient setting. Right? Amen? Thank you for your time. Let's pray, and you can go on about your business. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to be here with these wonderful people here this morning. And uh, we just celebrate you and praise you and worship you, Lord, that uh, all throughout uh, these ancient texts and these ancient laws, we see your beauty, your, the revelation of Christ revealed in every detail as we t- look at it and talk about it and study it. 
And I pray for a special blessing on a time of small group conversation. <laughs> conversation. Help uh, these, these uh, women to unpack um, this scripture in a way that is significant, that is profound, that is life-changing. I pray that not one person here today, not one person in these groups today will leave this week unchallenged or unchanged in some significant way. That's my prayer, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks.